Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Malachi. We're going to pick up next week where we left off several months ago in Matthew chapter 24, looking at Christ's teaching regarding the end of the world. But I thought that for this day of January of, of 2017, I wanted to give a word of encouragement from the Father as we begin a new year of, of ministry and service to our King. And I thought we would consider this text from Malachi chapter, chapter 3. So before we, we jump in, I'd like to just pray and ask that the Lord would open our minds to see and to understand what he is sharing with us from his word this morning. Father, we do ask that you would open our minds. We pray, God, that your spirit would work in our hearts. We ask you, Lord, that you would show us marvelous and wonderful things from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin a new year, as we start off into 2017, there are lots of exciting things that, are, uh, that have been in the works that we've been planning, that we've been working towards, and we will begin to see some of those things uh, coming to fruition in 2017. Uh, we are very excited to, hopefully this year, in the next couple of months, uh, be, giving, be starting a bus ministry. We have a church van, as most of you are aware. And uh, we're excited to get that van up and running and to begin giving rides to some of our senior folks on Sunday mornings who may not be able to drive anymore, as well as to provide rides on, in the middle of the week for uh, folks coming out for the 55-plus luncheon. In addition to that, we are eager to begin reaching out to university students at TRU and giving uh, university students rides on Sunday morning. And so we have a number of men who have committed and have, uh, have pledged themselves to driving the van, and that's one new ministry that we're excited that we're looking forward to this next year. Ryan Blyenberg, our youth pastor, has many uh, plans that he, is, he has set in motion uh, for the youth group. And as I announced last week, one of the things that I've gotten a lot of uh, uh, interest about over the last week, even though it's the holidays, a lot of you are curious to know more about these tenant talks that we're hoping to start uh, in March on Sunday mornings prior to the worship service, talking through the basic tenets and doctrines of the Christian faith. A number of you have expressed curiosity and, and wanted to know more about that. And there, the men who are involved in writing that material and putting together all of those different courses uh, that we're going to be offering in March, they're very, very excited. The men who are going to be driving the van are very, very, very excited. And there's a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm as we start 2017. At the same time, as I consider those individuals who are excited and passionate about the new things that we're going to be starting in 2017, I can't help but also reflect on what was 2016. And I can't help but reflect on the fact that for some of us in this room, as we say goodbye to 2016, perhaps we are feeling a little bit uh, discouraged. Perhaps we're feeling that we didn't see as much fruit come out of our efforts, we didn't see as much reward for our labors in 2016 as we would have liked to have seen. And so whether you're uh, of that particular bent this morning where you're feeling exhausted, where you're, whether you're feeling worn out from serving the Lord, or perhaps you find yourself this morning in the camp that is excited and ready to get going, regardless of whichever camp you're in, whether you're worn out or whether you're excited, we all know that there's going to be more disappointments, more difficulties, and more obstacles that we will face. If you're here this morning and you're excited, well, I'm glad for your excitement, and I'm glad for your enthusiasm. We will come up against the enemy again in 2017. And if we thought 2016 was hard, 
we're going to find it even a little bit more difficult as we step forward into 2017. And so as we start this year, what we really need, what we really need from the Father is a word of encouragement to us to persevere. I turn to Malachi when I look for that encouragement because what we find in Malachi is a letter written to a group of people who are doing the best that they can, but perhaps they could be doing it even better. Malachi is written sometime between 433 and 424 BC. We have that seven, eight, ten year window. We're not exactly sure when it was written. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. The situation is this. As you're all familiar, Israel has been dragged off into captivity. They've been in Babylon for many, many decades now, and there has been an initial return. About 100 years prior to the writing of Malachi, about 50,000 exiles under the leadership and the guidance of Zerubbabel have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. They've come home, and in a lot of ways, they've kind of begun to make a start in terms of their walk with the Lord. They've rebuilt the temple. They have rebuilt a wall around Jerusalem. They've started to put into motion a couple of things that will lead to the security of the city and will ultimately provide for the worship of the Father. But at the same time, I mean, just a hundred years in, they've gotten sidetracked. They've become discouraged. They've, in some sense, lost their way. They've begun to flirt with other temptations. They've begun to look at other passions their focus has sort of shifted a little bit from the Father. And the Father encourages them. I want you to look with me now in chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what the text says. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Those who feared the Lord spoke together. The Lord paid attention, and he heard them. He heard them talking. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once again you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who doesn't serve him. I find that to be one of the most incredibly encouraging verses in the whole Bible because there is a promise that is there for you and for me that if we fear the Lord and esteem his name, if that is true of us, then regardless of the results, regardless of how the situation looks, despite our best efforts, if everything is still more or less a shambles, the Lord hears us. He sees us, and he hears what's going on in our hearts, and he's right here with us. And despite outward appearances, he's promising us that there's a day coming in which the whole world will see that we are his children, that we are his people. There's a promise there that regardless of how things look, they look great to God if And here's the condition. If our heart is to serve him, to love him, if we have a heart like the Father's heart. So I want to give you that encouragement this morning. Now, again, there's a condition here. 
There's a promise, but that promise comes with a condition. It comes with a warning. You'll notice as it says here in verse 16, it says, then those who feared the Lord. The then there, it's a transitive verb. It means now after what has come before, something happened. Some people who feared the Lord got together and they spoke together and the Lord heard that and he made a promise. What does the then signify? It signifies that there's been a development. There's been something that's happened previously. So in order to understand why it is that these people are coming together and speaking to each other, we have to look further back in the text. So this promise really starts all the way back at verse 6. I want you to turn back. Now, God is saying to the people of Israel, he makes a statement, I, the Lord, do not change. He makes a promise to them. He says, I am a covenantal God. I don't change. My promises don't change. He says, as a result of that, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Well, that's pretty strong language. I would permit you to be consumed, except for the fact that I made a promise, except for the fact that I am a covenantal God keeping faith to all generations. He says here, from the days of your fathers, verse 7, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Now, the nation of Israel is doing a number of things. You'd have to go back and read the whole book of Malachi. I'll just give you a couple of snapshots. Number one, they're marrying specifically with women. They're intermarrying and engaging in relationships with other nations. They're compromising their worship. They're allowing influences in their lives through their marriages that will draw their hearts away from the Lord. That's one of the criticisms that he has. Another criticism that he has is that the priests are not taking their job seriously in the temple. They are not seriously trying to call the people together. They're not seriously trying to lead the nation of Israel into worship. The other criticism he has of them in this book is that when they offer to the Lord, when they make sacrifices to the Lord, they're not really seeking to honor the Lord. They're sort of finding when, when it's required that you bring a lamb to offer a lamb on the altar, it's like, well, the, the Bible would have me to offer my very best lamb, but maybe there's a lame, sickly lamb that I don't really care to eat anyway. I'll take that lame, sick lamb, and I'll offer that to God. All throughout the book of Malachi, God is looking at these different practices, and he's saying, you're, you're sort of engaging in this formalistic ritual. You're going through the motions, but your heart is far from me. You're not actually passionate for me. And that criticism comes to a boil here as we enter into chapter 3. He says, you're not consumed. You're not wiped off the map because I don't change. You have abandoned the statutes. You've abandoned the commandments, but I do not change. I draw encouragement from that verse by this simple fact alone. If I were to present to you the question, where is Israel? You can all point to it on a map. There is Israel. If I say to you, where are the Philistines? They're nowhere. Where are the Canaanites? They're nowhere. Where are the uh, Hittites, the Amalekites? They're nowhere. These people don't exist anymore. Ancient civilizations that have been swept aside by the sands of time, gone after a few centuries. And yet this very small dot of a people, I mean, it's a small country and nine miles wide at one point, where are they? They're still there to this very day. This ancient of ancient civilizations, the Jewish people still exist today when all other ancient civilizations dating back to that time have all been swept aside. And we're not even just talking about biblical civilizations that are mentioned in the Bible. You consider the Aztecs or the Mayans, mighty, powerful civilizations that built powerful, enormous structures in South America. They're nowhere today. 
God is saying in his word that because of who he is, these people persevere. Because of who he is, this nation continues. Which means we have a wonderful encouragement right here that God is going to keep his promises even when we are faithless. And the reason for that is because God is a covenant-keeping God. This verse alludes to the idea of his covenant with Israel. He has a covenant with you and me today through his son, Jesus Christ. This word covenant is kind of an unusual word. People have asked me, is there a modern concept? Is there a modern word that captures this idea of covenant? And there really isn't. Because modern society, modern man doesn't really appreciate the idea of covenant. I looked it up in Webster's. This is the, de- the dictionary definition that is given to us by Webster's covenant. The way in which two or more people or organizations regard and behave toward each other. Then it gives an example. The landlord-tenant relationship. That is not a covenant. Are you, some of you, a little bit surprised to see that mentioned in the, di- the, de- the dictionary? Landlord-tenant relationship. If you sign a lease agreement, if you're renting and you sign a lease agreement with a landlord, you're not in a covenantal relationship with your landlord. That's obvious to some of us. Um, You're in a contractual relationship with your landlord. You're in a legal relationship with your landlord. You're not in a covenantal relationship with your landlord. This is an idea that is largely lost to us today. The idea of a covenant is that it is a mixture, listen carefully, it is a mixture of love and law. It is a conjoining of those two. It's where we enter into a relationship that is binding, that has the force of law upon it, but it is a relationship that is defined by love. This is the relationship that God is said to have with us. And it's a very, very powerful thing. But again, modern society doesn't really appreciate that. The modern understanding of relationships too often is, I will enter into a relationship with you I will get married to you and we will be together so long as you continue to be what I think you ought to be, what I understand you to be in this present moment. But as soon as you change or as soon as you engage in something that I decide I don't like, as soon as you fail to live up to my expectations of what you are and what you ought to be, then I'm out of here. Because fundamentally, my rights, my happiness, and my individual concerns take precedence and priority over you and this relationship. That's the modern conception of what a marital relationship should be. But that is not a covenantal understanding. That is not what the Bible's understanding of a covenantal relationship is. God has already said it to us right here. In this first verse, though Israel has failed time and again, time and again, time and again, God does not destroy Israel because even when Israel is faithless, God is faithful. And even when Israel abandons the covenant, God will be true to the covenant, the relationship he has engaged with these people. A covenantal relationship is not like a landlord-tenant relationship. If you have an agreement with your landlord to mow the grass or to shovel the sidewalks, to 
do basic maintenance around the house or the property that you are leasing from your landlord. And if you fail to maintain those obligations or say you fail to pay the rent, which is at the heart of every basic landlord-tenant relationship, if you say, you know what, I'm not paying my, tent, my rent today, the landlord is going to say, I'm going to evict you from this property and dissolve our relationship. Israel, in a sense, doesn't honor God. And yet God does not cast them out. God does not abandon them. God does not throw them to the sands of time and say, I am done with you. He says, because I do not change, you, Israel, are not consumed. A covenantal relationship is where two individuals say to each other, I am committed to you, and I am committed to having this relationship with you regardless of what you do. Now, we need to make certain vows and certain promises to each other, and I promise that I will do this, and the other party is making those promises as well. We're exchanging vows. We're saying we're going to love and care for each other. We're going to sacrifice for each other. We're going to take care of each other. But the most powerful thing about a covenant relationship is that it's not a quid pro quo it's a statement that says, I will love you to the best of my ability. I will love you with all that I can, regardless of whether or not you reciprocate in the exact same way. There's a surrender of freedom, too. This is the thing that makes covenantal relationships really scary. It's where we give up a portion of our freedom. We say, no matter what happens here in this relationship, good or bad, and specifically with a view towards it potentially being bad. If it goes bad, I still will not leave you. I still will not forsake you. Sacrificing a portion of our freedom, that is the right to walk away if things don't go the way we want them to go, is a part of the gift of love that we make to those that we enter into a covenant relationship with. Let me say it again. The sacrifice of our freedom to walk away, sacrificing that, saying I no longer reserve that right, I no longer have that right to walk away, and giving that to the other person, that is a part of what makes a relationship covenantal. Now, I'm not suggesting that all relationships need to be covenantal. Just down the street from where I live is Cooper's, Cooper's Food, my grocery store. I go there, I buy groceries, they have groceries, the groceries are a certain price, I consider whether or not I want to pay the price. If there's another grocery store that opens up that's closer to me than Cooper's, and if their prices are better, they have better food at a cheaper rate, goodbye Cooper's. I'm not bound to you, I'm not obligated to come here and shop. I walk in, I know them to a certain extent, they know me, they say hi, I say hi. But if I say goodbye, then that's the end of it. And I don't care whether they are upset or not. Oh, we've lost his business. I'm going wherever the cheap food is. That's where I'm going to go, as you should too. Not every relationship is going to be covenantal. But the relationship that we have with God absolutely is covenantal. Now, this sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. Because if we say we love God, regardless of whether or not we think He's living up to his end of the bargain. Changes everything about how we are called to serve him and how we are called to love him. And we're going to see a case study of that. 
God transitions now into the next point in which he's going to talk about tithing and giving offerings and gifts to him. He makes a statement here, tail end of uh, verse 7. He says, you, you, uh, he encourages them in verse 6 to return. And then they say at the tail end of verse 7, how shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? We're going through the motions. We're putting the bare minimum into the offering plate. We're doing what we said we would do in a contractual understanding of our responsibilities to you. And his statement is, you are robbing me in your tithes and in your contributions. Now, previously in the book, they, he had talked about the fact that when they made offerings, when they made contributions, it wasn't that they weren't making them, but they were giving the uh, diseased and sick creatures. They weren't offering the very best of the best. They were giving him what was left over. And God is saying that in doing that, you were robbing me. Now, notice God's heart here. Don't think for a second that what God is interested in is for himself just to have the best animals and the best creatures. It's an act of worship that he's after, and there's a goal in mind. The the passage goes on, in your tithes and contributions, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He makes this statement in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, okay? And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing. Now, at this point, you're thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good. And it sounds very contractual. It sounds like if we would offer the very best to God, then he would just pour down blessings from heaven. We give the best to him, and he gives even more to us. It sounds like a quid pro quo. It sounds like a tit for tat until you come to the very end of the verse. Look at what he says here. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Put me to the test, and I will pour down for you a blessing until, look at this, very end of verse 10, there is no more need. Why did God have food in his house in the first place? A part of what God was calling for was that there would be a store of food in his house so that there were any poor or any destitute among the people that they could come to the temple, they could show that they were poor, that they were in need of food, and that God would supply that, that need. The priests were charged to administer this food, to hand it out. If there were poor people, if there were starving people, they could come and they could get fed. God's statement is, if you would give me the rightful contribution, I would pour down the blessings of heaven. But look at what the Father's heart is. The blessings of heaven wouldn't come to you as an individual. I offer this and God blesses me with so much more. The blessings would come to the community as a whole where we put in an offering and God showers down his blessings upon all of us so that the whole purpose of why we're giving the offering to reach the needs of those who are starving, that would be resolved. That would be taken care of. The reason why we're to be making offerings in the first place is that we would be reaching the needs of those who are less fortunate than us. If you approach this text and you say, I put in $10, and according to this text, as I'm reading it at a very surface level, God will pour back $100 into my life. Now, many preachers have taken that interpretation, but that is not what the passage is saying. God is saying, if you were to put in your rightful contribution with the view towards what it's supposed to accomplish, namely meeting the needs of those who are in desperate 
meet who are less fortunate. If you would do it with that focus, God is saying, I would meet you there and pour out my blessing on the whole community so that there wouldn't be that need. Now, some of you are thinking, yes, but I'm a part of that community. So would that not mean that as a part of that community, his blessing would fall on me as well? Absolutely. Absolutely it would. But if your focus is to say, I put in this much, and I ought to expect God to give me individually back this much more, then you have fallen into the same pattern of thinking and the same form of relationship that God is condemning here. It's not a quid pro quo. It's covenantal. Meaning we have the same love, we have the same passion, we have the same desires. The people's heart is to want to do what God has a heart to do as well. Now, if you want to do what God wants you to do, the promise is there. There's blessing to the community. But it's not a quid pro quo. You notice this by what they say next, the next accusation that God makes against them. He says in verse 13, your words have been hard against me. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. It's pointless. There's no purpose in serving God. There's no purpose in worshiping God. How do you come to that conclusion? The very next statement, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. You notice what they're saying to each other? Where is the financial profit in doing what God would have us to do? Their goal is not clearly to have a heart for the things that God has a heart for. Or to take care of the needs that God is passionate about taking care of. They're thinking about themselves. They have spoken against God when they have asked the question, what is the profit, what is the financial benefit of doing any of this? You'll notice there, it makes a statement, it is vain to serve God, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? That's an interesting reference. Um, there are numerous passages in Isaiah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer you to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus condemns this. Apparently in Israel, they're putting on a show of worshiping God. They're walking around saying, yes, we're worshiping God. They're walking around, as the text says in Malachi, in mourning. Jesus sheds some light on this when he rebukes the Pharisees and the priests and the religious establishment in his day for walking around as in mourning. He makes this statement in verse, this is Matthew chapter 6. Don't flip there, just listen. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. What Malachi is saying, what God is referring to here in Malachi is that the people of Israel, they're putting on a show of their religion. They're fasting, they're engaging in your typical religious 
practices, but they're doing it in such a way that everybody knows that they're doing it. They're walking around gloomy. They're walking around saying, oh, I'm fasting, I'm hungry today. They want everybody to observe this, but what they've noticed is that even though they're doing this, even though they're putting on a show of their religiosity, there's no financial benefit. So they're coming together. They're saying, you know, we're doing all of this stuff. We're fasting, we're acting gloomy, we're walking around as though we're in mourning before the Lord, and really, what's the profit of any of that? And God is saying to them, your heart is wrong. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke together. In the midst of these two stunning rebukes, number one, you're interested in your own benefit, you're interested in your own financial prosperity, you don't have a heart to meet the needs of the needy, And number two, you go through all these religious practices, but again, your main concern is your own financial benefit. As you're going through all of these things, you're not after what God is after, but there were some who were after what God wanted. He says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What do you think they said? The text doesn't say exactly. I imagine that they encouraged each other I have long thought as I have poured over this text that perhaps a companion text to this one is found in Hebrews chapter 10 where the writer of Hebrews encourages the Christian community, let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Later in Malachi, Malachi is going to reference the day of judgment, the day of the Lord's return. So here it says that these people who feared the Lord, who esteemed his name, they got together and they spoke to each other. It doesn't say exactly what they said. Maybe they confessed. Maybe they said, you know what? I actually have been in this for the wrong reasons. Maybe, maybe they were just trying to encourage each other. Hey, you know what? We live in a land full of hypocrites, but I know that you're seriously after what the Lord is after. I know that you seriously want what the Lord wants, and me too. And I noticed that, and I just want to encourage you. Maybe they were just encouraging each other. We don't know exactly what it said, but it's clear that in their speech, there were a couple of things that were obvious. Number one, look at verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And then look again, tail end of verse 16. A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That is, their number one concern in life was whatever God was concerned with. They feared him. They had a respect and a reverence for whatever it was that God had a respect and a reverence for, and they esteemed his name. His name should have been known in all the earth. There are all sorts of pagan gods. The nations all around Israel all have their pet gods, all have their pet idols that they bow down to and that they worship, and these people were concerned that the name Yahweh, that the name of the one true God, should be esteemed and should be exalted and lifted up. They're speaking to each other. We don't know exactly what it is that they're saying, but there are two things that are inherent in their speech. Number one, I care about what God cares about. And number two, I care about making God famous. Those people, God hears their speech and he says, they're going to be mine. You say, that's all well and good, preacher, but how am I supposed to draw any encouragement from that? If you're posing that question, my suggestion to you is that you are not concerned about what God is concerned about. 
God has just said to you here that if you have a heart for the things that he has a heart for, he sees it. It doesn't matter what kind of a ramshackle community you live in. It doesn't matter how badly the situation is, whether the wall that you've been ordered to, to build looks like a ramshackle wall, whether the temple that you build looks like, it looks like a shack compared to the temple that Solomon had built. God is saying it doesn't matter how things look. It doesn't matter how dire the situation is. It doesn't matter how sorry and pathetic it feels. If you fear the Lord and you desire to esteem his name, to see his name lifted up in all of the nations, he sees that and he says, there's a day coming in which I am going to exalt you because you exalted him. And all the world will know that you are his treasured possession. If you're sitting here today and saying to me, how is that supposed to encourage me? You should feel the conviction of scripture in this moment. If all you care about is God, then the only thing that should matter is what he says. And what he has just said to you is that he sees you, that he's with you, and he promises you he will lift you up at the proper time. Do you believe him? I think that one of the things we should be careful to do here at First Baptist Church in 2017 is to encourage each other forward in the fear of the Lord and in the esteeming of his name. How do we do that? I want you to take around a look around and I want you to see those who are serving him. You know, I see things. I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't see everything. There's a lot of things that I don't see. But when I walk around, I notice people who are serving. I think of guys like John and Dale Dykstra. I think of guys like Gordon Tom. I think of our wonderful and talented worship team that comes on a Friday evening to practice and rehearse and get ready for Sunday morning. I think about the Christmas banquet. You know, I get up and I walk around and I walk back into the kitchen. I see Jill Uinishan. I see Lynn Dykstra back there. I'm just walking around taking a look. And I see those things. And I know you see them too. So we all see people serving. We all see people sacrificing in order to establish this house of worship to lift high the name of Christ. We see those things, don't we? Do we say anything? Notice again what the verse says, verse 16. Those who feared the Lord, and later on it'll mention that they esteem his name. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. One of the reasons why we may feel discouraged, one of the reasons why we may feel like there's not any profit in serving the Lord is because we don't receive the proper encouragement from each other that we ought to. If you see someone sacrificing and serving the Lord, what I'd like for you to do this next year in 2017 is to be a person of encouragement. I want you to keep your eyes open. I want you to look around. They're not hard to see. I see them all the time. I know you do too. I want you to just write a little note. We've got mailboxes over here and... I'm reminded to tell you all that you need to clear out your mailboxes. Tons of Christmas cards and stuff jammed in there. So before you leave today, grab your stuff out of your box. But there are boxes over here. 
And one of the things I'd like to encourage you to do in 2017, if you see someone serving, let them know that you see them. And I want you to write them a card. And I want you to say, I saw you serving the Lord in this way, on this day, at this time. If I saw it, God also saw it. And you can quote this verse. A number of years ago, in Texas, my wife and I, <clears throat> there's this little town called Independent Texas, Independence, Texas. It's about halfway between Brenham and College Station. This little town is where Sam Houston, we have some friends moving to Houston, Texas here in the next couple of weeks, but Sam Houston leading the rebellion, the revolution as the Texans call it, against uh, Santa Ana and the Mexican, uh, the Mexican government. They secured their independence in this little town. So it's called, it's called Washington on the Brazos. The Brazos River runs right past there. For many, many, many years, the Texas state flower, the blue bonnet, uh, people would go down to this little town near where independence was secured, and uh, as an act of uh, celebration on Independence Day, they would sprinkle blue bonnet seeds. So if you go down to this little town in Independence, it's just fields and fields. There's no green. It's just fields and fields and fields of these pretty blue flowers. And there's another flower called an Indian, they call it an Indian paintbrush. It's a red flower, same kind of flower as a blue bonnet, but it's red. So you have blue and red swirl together. There's no green. These flowers have, because everybody has sprinkled for decades and decades and centuries now, the seed, it's just, it's just flowers packed for over the rolling hills for as far as the eye can see. It's beautiful. One time my wife and I went down there and uh, we were just kind of hiking through these fields and uh, we came across, we, we said, we want to see where the end of this is. Where does the end of the blue and red stop? Where does it come to a stop and where does the green grass start? And we found it. And we hiked a little bit further on, just kind of hiking out in the country. And we came down to this little bubbling brook that feeds into the Brazos River. And we found down there this one blue flower, one single solitary blue bonnet. And we were just kind of talking, and I, I kind of just whispered the statement to my wife, and I was just kind of talking to myself, and I said, hmm, God, this is a beautiful-looking flower. In fact, as you look at it, all the other flowers, they press together, and they, as they blow in the wind, petals and things get torn off of them. It's, it's beautiful to look at at a distance, but when you get up real close at these little flowers, they're, they're kind of beat up because of how they're all smushed together in this tiny space. But this flower was all alone. It wasn't beat up. It was perfect. It was symmetrical. There wasn't a petal off of it. And I was looking at this flower, and I thought, hmm, I wonder how many people make it all the way out here to see this flower. Not many. Probably no one. And I just kind of in my heart was praying to the Lord, and I said, Lord, why would you put this little blue flower all the way out here where no one can see it? And do you know what the Lord said? I see it. Came back the next year, hiked all the way out there in the springtime. Do you know what we found? We found two little flowers. If you're feeling alone, you're not alone. The Lord sees you. If you're feeling alone, why don't you try to encourage the flowers around you? And with that, let us enter 2017 knowing that all of our efforts to the honor and the glory of the Lord are recognized by him and remembered by him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for 
the promise that we have, that you see us, that you remember us. We thank you, Lord, that there is no good deed that we do for the esteeming of your name, for the lifting high of your Son in all the nations, that you do not remember and keep before you for all eternity. God, as we gather together this morning to worship you, we pray, Father, that we would keep that in our minds and in our hearts as we go forward into the new year. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us by your Spirit. Whether we receive cards this next year of individuals noticing the good things that we've done or not, Lord, help us to always know that for all of our sacrifice and for all of our service, if our heart is the same as your heart to lift high the name of your Son, Father, encourage us that you always see us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.